Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Show me or prove it to me seems to have become a household word in our skeptical culture, and not just for the folks in Missouri, right? The time-honored virtues of trust and confidence are rare, seldom found. And this isn't only true between two humans interacting together, but I think it is also, unfortunately, true between people and the living God. For centuries, it seems like people have been saying that if God expects them to believe in Him, then He must prove that he's real and and worthy of our absolute trust. Well, this is cause for pause, isn't it, for those who do believe? For those who see the evidence of his existence everywhere and all around us, and we really identify with Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his Eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. But not only that, again, for those who do believe and recognize that we have received a great gift from God, haven't we? And, of course, I'm referring to his son that he gave to us, grace expressed in the giving of his son. And so we are now in 1 Kings chapter 18. We have been going through uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18. We're, We're doing a study on the life of Elijah. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a showdown. That's going to be taking place. The showdown is going to be between the true and living God of heaven, the creator of all things, and the idols made by mere humans on earth. So just quick review and kind of a recap. In chapter 17, verse 1, we find Elijah speaking to Ahab. There will be no dew nor rain. Remember that? And then in the very next verse, we find God speaking to Elijah, time to get out. (laughs) Go hide yourself. And then verses 3 through 24 of that 17th chapter, we find Elijah spending an extended amount of time in seclusion and training at the Kareth Ravine as he is being tested, his faith being tested with the drying up of that brook. And then God speaks to him again and says, okay, now I want you to go to Zarephath. I've already directed a widow there to take care of you. He goes, he finds out that that widow who's supposed to be taking care of him is getting ready to fix her last meal and die. (laughs) Another time of training, right? But You guys remember what Elijah says? He says, give me some water. Oh, and by the way, fix me some bread. And that's when he finds out that she's getting ready to fix her last meal. And he says, well, go make me some bread. And then after you've given me some, have some for yourself. Kind of sounded a little bit selfish, didn't it? But it's really 
God's testing both Elijah and the widow because he says, the Lord wants you to know that if you will do this, if you will just trust him and his word, that flour and that oil will not run dry until he sends rain on the land again. And then, of course, God honored that. Flour and oil never ran out in her food pantry. But then another test, an even bigger one. The widow's son dies. And remember, the widow kind of in her hurting and in her, her um, just sorrow begins to blame Elijah for it. Like, what is it, man of God, prophet of the Lord? Is it because you're here, you revealed some sin in me, and now I'm having to pay for it by the death of my son? And, of course, Elijah knows he's innocent, but we saw that he just remained silent. He didn't come at her. He didn't get defensive. He didn't get on her case. He just took that son from her arms, went upstairs to his room, and prayed. And what did God do? God did a miracle, didn't he? He raises that son from the dead. That brings us to chapter 18. And so look at the first couple of verses with me. Verse 1 and then the first part of verse 2 as we are now where we are. It says, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So as we read, after a significant period of hiding and waiting on God, God once again speaks to Elijah. This is now the third time that God has spoken to him with some instruction, with some direction. In chapter 17, it's go talk to Ahab. It's now go hide yourself. This is huge. Remember, Elijah is a wanted man. Ahab has been looking for him, right? He's, he's like the number one guy on the top wanted list in Israel. So this is a big deal. Nothing to be taken lightly. God commands him to go. Basically, what he is saying, Elijah, I want you to hop right back into the frying pan. <laughs> I want you to jump right into the lion's den. He tells him to go and to show himself to the very one who's been looking for him to kill him. This, is, this was directly opposite of that first command, as I said. Show yourself really is telling Elijah, it's meaning that he's going to have to come out of hiding that he's going to be leaving the widow, the boy, and the food that God has been supplying during a time of drought and famine. Don't forget that. It was a difficult, dangerous command without question. But I want you to notice something here, and this is always the case with our God. This command, this dangerous command that God gives to Elijah is followed with a promise is our God good or what? Folks, that will always be the case. God's commands always followed with his promises. In this case, I will send rain. That's the promise that he goes with. What a relief that promise must have, must have been, don't you think? What a relief that must have brought. I think it's quite interesting that God's prophet, 
had never once complained about all the things that God would, had taken him through. I am sure, however, that everybody else in the place, in the land, had done their fair share of complaining, don't you think? But the difference between Elijah and all of those others was simple. He knew that God would one day fulfill his promise and that he would bring rain. Elijah knew that. They weren't there. Until then, Elijah would wait, never doubting because he was fully persuaded of something most of us at one time or another doubt. And that is the very promises of God. Once again, we see here the evidence of the goodness and faithfulness of our God. Here, here's what I mean. You see, despite the severity of the drought and the famine, Ahab and the people of the northern kingdom did not turn to the Lord for help. There is no record of their being willing to repent of their sinful, wicked ways. Not one record of that. No record of their willingness to turn away from their idolatry and false worship and begin to once again worship the Lord genuinely and wholeheartedly, Him and Him alone. Nevertheless, here's the goodness. Nevertheless, the Lord was ready to show and prove that He alone as, as undeserving as they are and as wretched as they are, he is wanting to come and prove that he alone, not the false gods that they've given themselves to, could meet their desperate needs. In mercy and in compassion, the Lord tells Elijah to go present himself to King Ahab because it was time for the Lord to come through on his promise, he's going to send rain on the land. It was time for the famine to end. Therefore, in obedience to the Lord, once again, Elijah, a wanted man, came out of hiding and he left to go confront the king. He goes to the king with his eyes wide open. I, I don't want you to miss this. In other words, this isn't Elijah saying, oh, yeah, sure, God, and then going out, out of hiding, naive about the danger that he is putting himself in. This is not a naive Elijah. This is Elijah saying yes to God, obeying the command. His eyes are wide open, but wide open to what? To the promises of God and not the problem. Yes. Oh, that's huge. Look at the rest of verse 2 and on to verse 3 now as we continue on. It says, Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Okay, very good. Obadiah is an interesting character. You know what his name means? His name actually means servant of God. Interesting because, and yet here is this servant of God, this one who Scripture tells us is a devout believer in God, is working for a very, very wicked king. 
working for Ahab. Although some scholars question Obadiah's integrity here, they really kind of call him in, you know, kind of call him onto, off, onto the carpet. And, and, and I'm not so sure that we can be so, so judging so quickly on this guy. Um, God has a way of putting his people in unexpected places. Anybody identify with that? <laughs> Working for the most wicked king in the history of Israel up to this point is a man named Obadiah, servant of God. You could say that he is serving behind enemy lines <laughs> in a very real way. He's, a, he's serving in a really difficult, wicked place. Actually, others have done the same thing. Think about Moses and Joseph. They served Pharaoh, right? Think about Daniel. He served a whole slew of pagan kings. And even after the 70-year captivity, when the people are allowed to go back to Israel, what did Daniel do? He stayed and served in Babylon. Think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, where we are told that there were Christians, there were believers, born-again people who were serving in Caesar's household. Wicked person. Sometimes God plants believers in ungodly situations to be a godly light. Look at verse 4 with me now. It says, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, you remember who Jezebel is, right? That's Ahab's wife, and she's, she's bad news. She says, while she was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets of the Lord and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. A dangerous task, really. I mean, Jezebel's out looking for them, wanting to kill them all. He's taken a hundred of them, hiding them, hid them away, and is making sure that they've got food and water in a time of drought and famine. Interesting. And even though Obadiah is working under Ahab, even though he may not have been a powerful prophet like Elijah, Hear me now, he certainly was profitable to the prophets. Amen. 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 <laughs> he hid them from a on the rampage murdering Jezebel because she's out trying to get rid of them all so that the whole land would just be about Baal and, and not Jehovah. He may not be powerful like Elijah, but you can be profitable like Obadiah. When asked the secret of his spiritual strength, Spurgeon said, I have a people who pray for me. I remember reading that back in the time when he was alive and preaching in England, something tabernacle was the name of his church, that underneath the main floor where the people were gathering and worshiping God and hearing the word of God being preached, beneath was a, a basement where there would be a couple of hundred people praying throughout the service for the service. Yeah. 
You might not be able to preach, but you can pray for those who do. You might not be able to cross the seas as a missionary does, but you can pray for them who do. I believe that those who are Obadiah in the body of Christ today, faithfully working behind the scenes, are not only profitable now to the church of Jesus Christ, but now, but will be greatly rewarded in heaven as well. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me now. He says, Ahab had said to Obadiah, who is his administrator, he's, he's a top guy in, on Ahab's staff, if you will. He says to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys and maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land. They were to cover Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah went into another. It appears the effects of the famine were reaching into the royal court, into the royal palace. And so for that reason, Ahab comes up with this idea, we need to go find some pasture land. So Ahab says, I'm going to cover this part of the land. Obadiah, you go and cover this part of the land. And hopefully we can find something so we can keep our animals alive, keep them from starving. Verses 7 through 13 kind of gives us the story of what happens when they part and go their ways. As God would have it, <laughs> I love as the way that Esther puts it. What, what is the term that is always in Esther? Um, at perchance, something like that, right? Of course, we know that that's not the case. We know that there's no such thing as coincidence in God, right? So as it would happen, Obadiah just happens to run into Elijah, <laughs> out there on a road somewhere. Don't you love that? He runs, into, he runs into Elijah out there, and God, we know then, has arranged the events so that their paths would cross. They meet each other, and it says that Obadiah bows before Elijah, and Elijah makes sure he gets up, you know, and they talk a little bit. And then Elijah lets Obadiah know he's got a, he's got a plan, he's got a mission for him. He has a favor he wants to ask. Obadiah, I want you to go back to King Ahab and tell him I'm looking for him. I want to talk to him. Obadiah, he kind of goes, uh, no. <laughs> I don't think so. And he reminds Elijah, hey, there's not a kingdom, there's not a, any place that Ahab hasn't gone looking for you. In fact, every nation he's gone to, every kingdom... That as he's looked into, and when they said that they could not find you, that you weren't there, he made them sign a vow, saying they, they were telling the truth. So, Elijah, what have I done to you <laughs> to make it so that you're going to send me back to Ahab and have him kill me when I say that Ahab wants to speak to you? I don't know that the Spirit of the Lord won't move you somewhere else when I go tell Ahab that you're here. He's going to come and you won't be here. I'm a dead man. They talk. Elijah says, hey, listen, I'll tell you what. In verse 15, he says, I assure you, I won't go anywhere. I will be here. So he goes and he tells Ahab about it. Verse 16, look at this with me. It says, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab. And sure enough, Elijah is there. You know, he goes and tells Ahab that. And, uh, and Ahab goes out and meets Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, listen to what Ahab says. Talk about 
how's the term, the pot telling, the, however that goes. Yeah, that one. <laughs> when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah responds, I'm not the one who's caused the trouble, but you are. You and your father's family are the ones. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. I remember as a kid, I don't know what it was like where you grew up when you were a kid, but when I remember back in school when I was a kid, if somebody was wanting to have a fight with another kid, the kid who was wanting to pick the fight would start talking tough, and now he's going to do this and that to this other kid. And so consequently, the word would get out. Hey, have you heard? Frankie's looking for Bobby. <laughs> You know, so-and-so was looking for so-and-so. That was the terminology. You know what I love about this here? Is that Ahab thinks that he's been looking for Elijah, and he has. But do you see here how God is turning the tables? (laughs) you got to love it. God's turning the tables, and he's... Fixing it so now that it is actually Ahab who's been in hiding, who's the man who is wanted, is now looking for the king. (laughs) Church, if we can learn anything from this, may we learn this. God will always have the upper hand. Yeah, I love it. Ahab once again says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Says, no, I'm not. Elijah says, I'm not the one. You are. Ahab was the troublemaker, and Elijah was the troubleshooter. Elijah continues to explain why and how Ahab has been the problem, how he's the one who's the troubler of Israel. He says, you're not a follower of God. You've completely turned your back on him, and you're following a false god by the name of Baal. What is up with that? Look at verse 19 and 20 now. Now summon the people. This is Elijah speaking to the kings. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And if you're not sure who the Asherah is, it's sort of the female companion of the male god Baal. Okay, so that's the combination there. And he says, who eat at Jezebel's table, probably not literally at her table, but she's making sure that they're taken care of. She's she's funding them and providing for them. So Ahab, this is verse 20, sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. I want you to kind of get a a sense for the scene here as they're interacting a... uh, Elijah gives Ahab no time to respond after he's issued a command, really. Elijah challenges the king to gather all the people and all the prophets to meet him on Mount Carmel. Showdown. Ahab accepted the challenge, and I think he does because he, in his deception, thinks, yeah, this is a way where I can finally get rid of this guy and rid him of the land once and for all completely deceived by his faith in worship and false 
the false god Baal, Ahab excitedly sends out word, <laughs> summoning the people to attend. And obviously, I think there were no doubt multiplied thousands who showed up throughout the land and gathered together to witness this showdown. Look at verse 21 now. Elijah went before the people. They're all there. They've gathered. Showdown time. And look at what Elijah says. He went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if it's Baal and if he's God, follow him. But some of the saddest words, in my opinion, in Scripture are the next words we read. But the people said nothing. I like how the message phrases verse 21. It says, Elijah challenged the people. How long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If Baal is the real God, follow him. Make up your minds. And then it says, nobody said a word. Nobody made a move. Wow. Folks, please hear this. Divided allegiance is as wrong as open idolatry. The easiest thing to do when you are outnumbered or overwhelmed is to remain in that mediocre state of non-commitment. That was where the people of Israel were living. And Elijah is basically letting them know they can't remain there any longer. It's decision time. Either get off the fence <laughs> or <laughs> suffer the consequences. The strongest words, I think, that were given to the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, were those that were given to the church at Laodicea. And the reason is very clear. They were uncommitted. They were sitting on the fence. They existed in a place of neutrality. I know your deeds, Jesus says, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, complacent, apathetic, lukewarm, sitting on the fence, yes, yes. neither hot or cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. Yeah. Elijah is telling the people Again, to get off the fence, either you are for God or you are against him. You might not like that, but that is clearly the message of God from cover to cover. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no in-between. Right. Now is the time to change all of that, Elijah is saying. Not only to them, but he's saying it to us this morning. Stop hiding your love for and commitment to Jesus Christ. Let the word out gracefully, 
yet fearlessly, church, and speak devotedly of your faith. Start now. There are so many strategic ways that God can use you at your job or in your neighborhood, in your school, if anybody's in school, in your home. Listen, church, neutrality in the hour of decision is a curse that invariably leads to tragic, tragic consequences. Pray and ask God for his help. Become, because our most effective tool is the prayer of faith. Amen. When it came down to the wire, when Baal had failed and God was about to show himself his power and do his work, the one instrument that Elijah used was prayer. That is it. Keep in mind that Elijah didn't use prayer as a last resort here. <laughs> prayer was his first and his only resort. A simple prayer of faith was his major source of contact with the living God. And it set everything in motion. Last week, I asked you if you have a special place where you can go and be alone with God. That place where there's no distraction. This morning, I want to follow up that question with this question. How is your prayer life? I am amazed at how, generally speaking, professing Christians basically ignore this amazing gift that we have been given called prayer. How's your prayer life? Can you look back over the last seven days and pinpoint times where you deliberately, intentionally set aside time for prayer? Has there been just even just a solid 10 minutes or, or 15 minutes of uninterrupted prayer time for God? Church, never underestimate the power of one completely totally dedicated life to Christ. How exciting would it be if through your prayers and your dedication to Jesus, you could influence one person this next week, either by leading them to Jesus Christ or by building them up in the faith. It's not impossible. It's really not. We serve a God in whom nothing is impossible. Amen? Amen. And the Bible and history are filled with stories of the difference that one person's dedication to God has made. Elijah staged a pretty impressive showdown. <laughs> but the greatest showdown of all time was at Calvary. Amen? Another mount. Where God defeated the enemy by the sacrifice of his own son. Why? Because God had one dedicated life that he could count on. His own dear son. In fact, the difference Jesus made changed all of history, did it not? I just want to encourage you today. 
step up. Come out of hiding yourself and be counted as one who belongs to Jesus. Pray and ask that God would make your heart brave <laughs> and courageous. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 of them. I don't know where the other 400 of the Asherah guys folks are, but he mentions these 450. Now, obviously, Elijah, we find out later on in chapter 19, he isn't the only one. He finds out by God himself that God had taken 7,000 and hid them who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But if anything, maybe what Elijah is saying at this moment in time on Mount Carmel, at this showdown, he's it. <laughs> but it's great numbers, you guys. I want you to really see this and apply it to your own life. It looks like it's 450 to 1. No, 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 no. It is actually 450 against 1 plus God. <laughs> yeah. I love that. From verses 23 through 26, we, Elijah kind of gives them the plan. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. He says, choose, choose a bull, cut it into pieces, put it on the wood of their altar that they had there. He says, don't light it on fire because what I'm going to have you do is call on your God, that false God named Baal, and we're going to have him light it, if he can Verse 26 lets us know that they called out to Baal. They did that. They thought it was a great idea. They thought it was a great plan. Yeah, let's do it. And they do all that. They get it all prepared. And they start yelling and crying out and dancing around the altar. Verse 26 lets us know they did all that, but there was no answer. I love verse 27. At noon, <laughs> Elijah began to taunt them. And we're thinking, Eli, would Elijah do that? <laughs> Picture him, some animal skin thing on, like, right? Like, described like John the Baptist is described, leather belt, wild-eyed, hair everywhere. <laughs> That's how I'd see him. And he starts to taunt them. Let's read on. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is in deep thought or, or busy or traveling. Maybe, maybe he's sleeping and, and, and needs to be awakened. Maybe he's taking a nap. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Verse 29, midday passed and they continue their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. We're, we're talking like six-ish now. But there was no response. No one answered. <laughs> no one paid attention. Elijah, after all that, he does his part. He, the altars of the Lord had obviously had been torn down as Jezebel's out there killing off the prophets. She'd messed them all up and destroyed them. Elijah prepares and repairs the altar of the Lord there on Mount Carmel. 
He piled up 12 stones, as tells us, each for each tribe, a stone for every tribe of Israel. He digs a trench around the altar. He sets up the firewood, cuts the bull into pieces, which, by the way, represents sacrifice for the people's sin. As far as Elijah is concerned, that's what he's doing here. And then he has water poured on it. Four barrels of water filled three times. Twelve, again, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now keep in mind, this is during a time of drought and famine. So you curious ones out there are thinking, so where did the water come from? And there are several Actually, a lot of different ideas, as you might could imagine. The one that I favor is because Mount Carmel is right near the Mediterranean Sea. And actually, from Mount Carmel, you can see the Mediterranean. And by the way, let me just pause for a second real quickly. In 2009, I got to, Marilyn and I got to go to Israel for the second time. And we actually got to go to Mount Carmel. You know what's on top of Mount Carmel today? A Christian church. Isn't that cool? Now, I got to tell you, we were able to join them for a worship service in that church on Mount Carmel. And it wasn't just newborn, born-again Israelis worshiping Jesus. There were Jews and Arabs worshiping together in that place. Hallelujah, right? I just had to throw that in. I just, it was amazing. From Mount Carmel, you can see the Mediterranean. So one of the ideas that scholars suggest, we don't know because we're not told, is that the water could have come from the Mediterranean Sea. Now, because it's ocean water, that means it was salt water, right? Yeah, this is, this is interesting. If that is the case, and if that is where the water came from, it would have been salt water. And according, this is interesting, according to Leviticus chapter 2, no sacrifice was to be made without salt. <laughs> Probably why I favor this one. <laughs> and so here's salt water that's being poured upon the sacrifice. Look at verse 36 with me. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, another name for Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord <laughs> fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. Verse 39, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he 
is God. The bell, the bell prophets had prayed. Now, this is, I like this. The bell prophets had been praying and crying out and cutting themselves for at least six hours. And nothing happened. <laughs> Elijah stepped up to his altar and prayed. And you know what? In the NIV, I counted it out. I counted out the prayer, the words in the prayer in the NIV translation, 58 words. I timed myself when I read them. It took me about 20 seconds. They prayed six hours, nothing. <laughs> Elijah prayed for 20 seconds, and the fire of God Woo! fell. Yes. Woo! Elijah refused to be intimidated by Ahab and his worthless prophets of Baal. And so God answers Elijah's prayer. This not only brought down the fire, but far more importantly, it turned the hearts of the people back to their God, where it was supposed to be anyway, right? It also rid the land of the Baal prophets. Verse 40 then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal and don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. People will read this and say, hey, that sounds like a pretty harsh God. Did he really have to do that? Let me ask you something. If you were to go to the doctor and they run, you know, tests of this and that, and, and it, the tests come back and, and they tell you, we have found that you have a cancer. And then he says, but we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to send you home, hope for the best. How are you going to feel about that? <laughs> not going to be happy about that, are you? You see, this is what God is doing here. He's ridding the land of a cancer. Dangerous, wicked, evil, lethal cancer, spiritually. And besides, it isn't even Elijah who is doing this. This isn't even so much at his word. God had already put in motion this command back in Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verse 20, this is what God says, But if a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, little g, must be put to death, the Lord. Church, let it be said that nothing ought to intimidate those who know that what they believe is based on what God has said. Amen. The equation, again, is never 450 to 1. It is 450 against 1 plus God. You see, when we know that we are in the will of God, there's a good term to describe that. And you need to buy into this and embrace it and live it. The term, in a word, invincible. Never once was Elijah intimidated. In this passage, Eliza spoke eight times. Every time he spoke, he commanded. 
commanded Obadiah. He commanded Ahab the king. He commanded the prophets of Baal. He commanded. He didn't shift. He didn't stutter. He didn't suggest in the power and authority of God. He issued commands. He wasn't on the defense. He was on the offense. He knew where he stood. And once again, a good word to describe that is the word invincible. It's who we are as those who are in Christ. The problem for Ahab, Jezebel, and the false prophets of Baal was they were empty of the truth, right? Totally void of the truth. Excitement church without truth is dead. It is empty and it is unfulfilling. Truth without empty worldly excitement and entertainment can be very fulfilling. God's truth is what changes a person's life. Amen. Wasn't it after all what Jesus tells us? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. free which is true, lasting, godly excitement. <laughs> is your life a mark of excitement today? Those who know you, who work with you, are they seeing excitement because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you looking like, sounding like all the rest of the others? Church truth does not have to be boring. Truth becomes boring when it's not applied in one's life. The reasoning of a bored person is simply like, well, why do I need to do this? Missing the whole point. This leads to the boredom in their life. Truth is boring when it is not understood. For this reason, we must listen carefully and seek to understand truth. When truth is applied, it can be very, very exciting because it is life-changing. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of the Word of God and brings it to us and fills us with his joy and with his fulfillment and his contentment and all those things we really do want down deep in our heart where we go looking everywhere else except for where we need to be looking. God has it for us. Also, when truth is applied to our lives, it will breed within us courage. I mentioned earlier Praying and asking and believing God for a brave heart. Courage. A professor gave his class an assignment. They were to turn in a five-page paper, and the theme of the paper was to be courage. Each student was to describe the best example of courage that he or she had ever witnessed. One student boldly <laughs> turned in five blank pages and the professor gave him an A. Church, may we, like Elijah, live for God with brave hearts and courageously. Yeah? Yeah. Father, we come before you and we just want to say thank you for, for being our God, for saving us, 
for calling us and for giving us purpose for living. And that purpose has nothing to do with living for ourselves, has everything to do with getting ourselves out of the way and obtaining, because of our faith in you and our trust in you, brave hearts, courageous spirits, coming out of hiding and making it known that we belong to Jesus. I pray, God, that you, you help us all to find our way to that place. May we become convinced that sitting on the fence is not a place to be. You didn't go to the cross just so that we could sit on a fence. You went to the cross so that we would lay our lives down for you as well and then live for you, displaying you and reflecting you in mighty ways. This is our purpose. It's what you've called us to. May we take you seriously. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com.